Welcome back to uh, second and half of Amplify. Our guest this evening is Patrick Novikoski. We're talking about the book he's written, 100 Ways John Paul II, he's talking about St. Pope John Paul II, changed the world. And um, it's uh, impossible to probably even mention 100 during the course of the program as as long as it is. We've covered a, f- a few of them, but during this last part of our program, we want to be able to talk about uh, the last 10. But, but, but a way of introducing this hour, I'd like to read from number 14, which is the splendor of truth, because truth somehow underlies in one way or another all the other 99 ways in which uh, John Paul changed the world. He writes, John Paul taught that truth and freedom are forever connected because they are both found in the person of Jesus Christ. People, he wrote, are created with an innate desire to know the Lord. Quote, faith and reason are like two wings on which the human spirit rises to the contemplation of truth. And God has placed in the human heart a desire to know the truth, in a word, to know himself. So that by knowing and loving God, men and women may also come to the fullness of truth about themselves. Once the truth is denied to human beings, it is pure illusion to try to set them free. Truth and freedom either go together hand in hand or together they perish in misery. Close quote. And then Patrick writes, sin darkens our ability to recognize the truth, but a heart open to God is open to truth. And then the quote, Christ has called you and chosen you to live in the freedom of the children of God. Turn to him in prayer and love. Ask him to grant you the courage and strength to live in this freedom always. Walk with him who is the way, the truth, and the life. Patrick, are these final 10, you think, the 10 most important? Are they? Did you try to rank them also, all 100 of them? Yeah, so I get that question a lot, actually. Um, my, my book started with um, a talk that I've been giving for about 10 years, um, because it's a unique situation to say that I met a saint five times. And so I started, my, my talk was, was about how that happened, which I related in the first hour, but th- there just wasn't enough substance there. So I wanted to add something uh, to talk about his legacy. So what I did was I put together this top 10 list, and, and um, I, I'm friends with a number of, of John Paul II scholars, Paul Kingor, who wrote, wrote my, um, my, my foreword. Uh, he's written several books about John Paul II. I know George Weigel, so uh, and another uh, a bunch of other Catholic writers. So I, I reached out to them uh, about ten years ago, and I said, "I put together this list. So what do you think? Is, is this does this resonate with you?" And uh, so that's how I, I developed the list. And and um, my talk w- started out about how I met him. It was very exciting, and then. This is his legacy. These are the top 10 things that he did that really changed the world forever. So when I wrote the book, I already had the top 10, but to build the other 90, I didn't put the top, the, the first 90, I didn't put them in any specific order, but I put them in a way that, that would flow naturally into the top 10. 
So the top 10 are ranked in, in what I consider, uh, with, with the help of my lifelines, my, my scholarly sure. friends' uh, advice, uh, the, the top 10 most influential things that he, he accomplished in his 26-and-a-half-year papacy. Let me, let me just um, list those 10, 12 for our listeners and then talk about which ones you would like to in the time we have. Number 10 is devotion to Mary. Nine is unpacking Vatican II. Eight is the culture of life. Seven is World Youth Day. Six are the luminous mysteries of the rosary. Five is the catechism of the Catholic Church. Four is the fall of communism. Three is the theology of the body. Two is divine mercy. And one is new evangelization. Do you want to start with devotion to Mary or you just want to select one or the other? Yeah, yeah. Let's let's start start at ten, and, and then work our way through. Um, I, I talked about his devotion to Mary earlier in the program about how his mother died when he was almost nine years old, and his father instilled in him the, this um, love for Our Lady as as his new mother, and and of course Mary always leads us to Jesus, and and. He recognized that very early, and he used that in his own life to get closer to our Lord. But he also showed us how he did that, uh, and, and in in a beautiful way. Um, one of the one of just the, an example is that when he was made a bishop in 1958, I believe 1958, when he was created a bishop, uh, he created his coat of arms, his 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 his. Um, What's another word for coat of arms? <laughs> his, his um, um, I, I think your listeners know what I yes, mean. Yes, coat of arms. Um, yes, and yes, yeah, his coat of arms has has a cross, uh, and, and it also had a, a, an M in the bottom corner, and that M stands for for Mary. Oh, you meant and mo- motto? Did that you, forward. Did you mean papal motto? Yeah, he, yeah, as well as his motto. So right, his coat okay. of arms and his motto. So his his motto as a bishop was totus tuus, which is. Uh, completely yours, translated from Latin. And, and what that means is, is, Mary, I am completely yours. Uh, and and in, in doing that, abandonment to Our Lady is, is, is saying, I know that you are the surest, quickest way to Jesus. So I abandon myself to you with the sure faith that you will bring me to our Lord. And, and you know, th- th- this is in a sense, uniquely Catholic, but it's also very biblical. And John Paul II, uh, as a young man, read St. Louis de Montfort, um, his, his book, um, True Devotions. Um, is that what it's called? I don't have the book in front of me to tell me what it was. But um, So he, he read St. Louis de Montfort, who, who wrote beautifully about Our Lady, and he, he used that as his template, and then he built upon that in, in his own writings. So um, so, so yeah, he was he was a very Marian pope. He he wrote an encyclical um, about Mary. He created he he, um, he declared a Marian year, I believe, 1987. If you've got the book in front of me, you can, feel free to correct me. That's correct. Um, yes, that's and, correct. Yeah, and and then we'll, we'll get into this later. But he also um, suggested, uh, and, and maybe we can just jump right into that: the luminous mysteries of the Rosary. I think ties in very well to his devotion to Mary. Sure, go ahead. If you'd like to do yeah, that. Yeah. So, 
So for the Catholics out there who, who understand and pray the rosary, the, 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 the rosary is, is a series of prayers uh, that, that's a meditation on the life of Jesus. The, the sorrowful mysteries are the agony of the garden, the, the scourging at the pillar, the crowning with thorns, uh, carrying of the cross, and, and Christ's death uh, uh, on Calvary. Um, and, and then, uh, traditionally, the rosary – oh, sorry, maybe I should take a step back. <laughs> the sure. the um, Help me out here, here Monsignor. <laughs> the first the, – the, the joyful mysteries, yes. the, the Annunciation um, – um, I'm, I'm struggling. Help me out. Uh, the the Annunciation was first, and then the um, the, the sorrowful the, mysteries. The, the yep. yes, the, yeah, the the, vis- the, the all, There's many different uh, mysteries. Yes. Yeah. No. And, and then and then we go to, go to uh, yeah. So anyway, the, 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 there was just so the, the 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 joyful mysteries are meditation on the early part of Jesus' life. The sorrowful mysteries are a, a meditation on his passion and death. The uh, the glorious mysteries are yeah. on his resurrection and ascension into heaven. Uh, but there were no mysteries of the rosary that were dedicated to, to the ministry of Jesus. So John Paul II suggested for the church uh, a, a new set of mysteries in the rosary to be prayed, meditating on the life of Jesus, his his, his life of ministry. And it help me out here. They, they include the uh, the wedding at Cana, the uh, transfiguration, the um, proclamation of uh, the gospel, right. and the uh, institution of the Eucharist, the, the last the Last Supper. Right. Right. So, the, and that was that was not necessarily new. Uh, interestingly, what I found in my research is that there was an Italian priest that suggested these mysteries of the rosary, um, I believe in the 1940s or 50s. And there's no, I didn't find a connection between John Paul um, reading these and and using them for for his own um, letter on the rosary. But uh, there must be, because John Paul II actually uh, beatified or canonized this priest. It, it's in my book, but I just don't have the book in front of me. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> right. Um, the priest that s- had suggested them is, is now a saint himself. So it, it's a, but it's a beautiful uh, addition to to the traditional rosary. Um, one of the things I think that even most Catholics that, that are familiar with with these uh, luminous mysteries or mysteries of light. Uh, they don't realize that John Paul didn't impose them on the church. He just suggested it in, in, in a pastoral letter to, to the church. And for those of us that pray the rosary, it was like, yes, of course. Why didn't somebody think of this sooner, right? <laughs> right. So the, those are, are, are two of my top ten, is devotion to Our Lady and, and the, the luminous mysteries. And... Um... Unpacking uh, Vatican II, as a young priest, he was summoned to Rome for the opening sessions of the Second Vatican Council in 1962. That was even before I was ordained, Um, but our class was the first to be ordained after the documents uh, were promulgated in December of 1965. I've said it many times in this program, and so we entered into a different church as it it was between the young and the old. And uh, he had become a significant figure in the council's deliberations, uh, playing important roles in uh, developing the uh, 
text on religious freedom, on the vocation of the lady, and he also uh, helped draft you write one of the council's most controversial documents, the pastoral constitution uh, on the church in the modern world. And so when he's elected pope 13 years after the council, uh, he inherits a deeply divided church. And uh, there's yeah, a sense in sure which and there's a sense in which those divisions exist today, but in, in but in a different way. And and so uh, he said that to interpret the council on the supposition that it marks a break with the past, when in reality it stands in continuity with the faith of all times, is a definite uh, mistake. And so his pontificate Ooh. brought. Um, as you believe, the Council's teachings into the 21st century, and uh, he called Vatican II, quote, a truly a prophetic message for the Church's life. It will continue to be so for many years in the third millennium, wherein now the Church, rich in the eternal truths entrusted to her, will speak to the world, proclaiming that Jesus Christ is the one true Savior of the world, yesterday, today, and forever, and that certainly has become a challenge today, as he talked about it, making that proclamation that Jesus is the true Savior of the world. Beautifully said, beautifully said. Yeah, when when John Paul uh, became, became a bishop in 1958, he had only been a bishop for four years. He would have been, in 1962, he would have been 42 years old, very young bishop. He sat near the back of the room because he was so young but because of his his superior intellect uh and and his engaging personality and the depth of his understanding of, of church teachings he he as you, you read he, he became one of the most influential fathers of the council and when when he became pope in 1978 many people who who knew him said he already knows how to be the pope because he had spent so much time in Rome, he had studied in Rome, he had been a father of the council. He, he stepped into the role knowing that his job was to unpack the council. And George Weigel, who, who is John Paul's official biographer, who had spent hundreds of hours with John Paul II in, in, in conversation, had said that uh, John Paul II's pontificate proved that his, his pontificate was spent unpacking the council. Essentially, that was one of one of his primary uh, roles. And honestly, I think that one of the reasons God allowed us to have a very young pope—he was 58 when he was elected—was uh, so that he could have the time to unpack the council. One of the things that many of the critics of, of the council don't understand is that. Most of the councils of the Catholic Church over the last 2,000 years have taken decades and, and even centuries to, to unpack, to, uh, to have uh, assimilated into the Church worldwide and, and fully accepted by, by the faithful uh, and, and by the clergy. It, it doesn't happen in a decade or two decades or, or even a century. It takes a long time for the church to fully assimilate the teachings of, of a significant council. And certainly, uh, you know, go, you go back to the Council of Trent uh, and look at how long that took for the church to, to fully accept. They, they even balked at, at the, um, the, um, 
the, the, the creed that, that came out of the Council of Trent. Uh, pe- people didn't want to change. So um, I, I think that's one of the reasons that, that John Paul was, was Pope for so long, that God gave him to us so that he could really put some meat on the bones of the Council, so to speak. And related to that is number five, the Catechism of the Catholic Church, where you write that with the tumult that followed the Second Vatican Council, both Paul VI and John Paul II fixed their attention on the necessity of unpacking the Council and dealing with the dissent and rampant confusion that uh, resulted from it. And he tasked a, a group of 12 bishops with creating a new catechism. And it was interesting that this was led primarily by then Cardinal uh, Joseph Ratzinger, later Pope. Mm -hmm. And uh, the result was an up-to-date, comprehensive declaration of Catholic beliefs. And although the writing and publication of the new catechism of the Catholic Church were not without challenges, uh, you write, John Paul approved and promulgated the text in 19. 92. And um, one of the big differences, of course, was unlike previous iterations, the catechism was no longer in a question and an answer format by which many of us had learned uh, uh, about the Catholic faith. But critics inside the church, and there were many of them, uh, said that a universal catechism was an outdated idea, that there was no need for such a resource but um, uh, John Paul didn't believe that at all. And you have this quote from him that the catechism was, quote, indispensable in order that the richness of the teaching of the church following the Second Vatican Council could be preserved in a new synthesis and given a new direction without the catechism of the universal church. This would not have been Accomplished, and so a great deal was accomplished through this ex, this new catechism. Absolutely, one, one of the interesting things that that really uh, resounded for me was that, that there are all these critics saying, "Oh, Holy Father, we don't need a catechism. That's such an old-fashioned idea." But then they published it, and it became an international bestseller in dozens of languages. The faithful just ate this up. I mean, I, I have a friend who said that he saw the catechism in the early 1990s on the shelf uh, of the checkout line at a grocery store. Oh. It was that popular that they're selling it in grocery stores. And if you go to Amazon's best-selling books, even now, it, it's one of the top-selling books even today, decades later. So it, it tells you that, that there's something here that is, is so valuable that, that people decades later are still still scooping it up. And the other thing I think I noted in the book is that what other faith has such a comprehensive right. document that tells what we believe and why? No right. other faith has done this. Uh, many of them just, they, they just, uh, they vote on what they believe. It's by popular consensus. And the Catholic Church says, no, we're, we go by universal truth. Like, uh, th- this is time tested. It, it's been uh, debated and and um, and explained by saints and scholars, and and so th- it, it's really a beautiful document, both for evangelization and for catechesis. 
Um, if, if I meet someone who's interested in the Catholic Church, the first thing I say is read the Church right. Fathers, the, the early Church Fathers, and read the Catechism of the Catholic Church, and, and then let's talk. Because once you, you, you've sunk your teeth into those things, um, it dispels so many of the um, um, objections to, to what the Church teaches. All right. I, I think it was Fulton Sheen who said Patrick, that— uh, Patrick, I yeah. need to break in. We're going to take this break. Okay. Welcome back to uh, final segment of Amplify, where our guest is Patrick Novikoski. We've been talking about his book, 100 Ways That uh, John Paul II Changed the World. We certainly haven't talked about all 100 ways. We're we're speaking about the uh, 10 that uh, that he has selected as the most important, and uh, we're working our way through them, hopefully, as much as we can before we, before we end our program. And the others were, the other uh, 90 were th- various things uh, with various people that uh, uh, John Paul II had accomplished. And we were talking about the Catechism of the Catholic Church, Patrick, when you began to make reference uh, to... Um, uh, something about um, Archbishop Fulton Sheen. <laughs> you know, I was about to say, I think it was Fulton Sheen who said that people don't leave the Catholic Church for what it teaches. They, believe, they, they leave the Catholic Church for what they think it teaches. Yes. Or something to that effect. And, um, and he had, ad, uh, Pope John Paul had admiration for Archbishop uh, Fulton Sheen uh, they only met once, uh, you indicated, and but uh, the Pope indicated that he was uh, one of the first great evangelists uh, in in the modern church. But um, let's let's talk about uh, some of the others. Let me just mention World Youth Day, which is number seven on your list, and you point out that John Paul drew the largest crowd in human history, between five and seven million people. Uh, for World Youth Day in Manila. And while it's impossible to measure the full impact of World Youth Day, it's also impossible to uh, ignore its fruit that the secular media predicted World Youth Day in 1993 here in our country in Denver would be a bust. Uh, They thought that uh, no sane young person, Catholic or otherwise, would uh, go to a place like Colorado to listen to a 73-year-old uh, Polish Pope, but they were wrong, weren't they? You know, it's interesting that they had that reaction because uh, I, I had read that for years that they predicted that, that World Youth Day in Denver would be a disaster. But when John Paul came to the United States for the first time as Pope in 1979, uh, he got a rock star welcome. He came back in 87, traveled the country, and people turned out to see him in droves, young people, old people. He came to places like Des Moines, Iowa, and celebrated Mass in a field, and hundreds of thousands of people came. So why on earth would they say that World Youth Day in Denver is going to be a disaster. It, it, it boggles my mind that they they couldn't comprehend that that this was a man that drew crowds. A, mm-hmm. And even if they didn't understand why, the, I, I think they were trying to be prophetic and trying to say that he he has 
he had his ship had sailed. He, you know, that's old news. That happened ten years ago, five years ago. He he can't do it again. He couldn't possibly. <laughs> but it was a resounding success. Denver uh, launched uh, a thousand ships of Catholicism in the United States, and those ships have borne so many, borne so much fruit for the church in this country that it's it's almost incomprehensible. You look at organizations like Focus and the Augustine Institute alone that are in Denver and and what they've been able to accomplish because of John Paul's inspiration, let alone the thousands and thousands of, of vocations to the priesthood and, and holy marriages. I, I have friends in Los Angeles. They they met, they were dating, they went to World Youth Day in, in Poland um, about five five, six years ago. And and that's where their romance came alive. That's where it blossomed. And they just had twins a year ago, and they named them Faustina and John Paul. So oh, yes. <laughs> it, it's it's the fruit of World Youth Day, and it's beautiful. And um, the the last four are the fall of communism, theology of the body, divine mercy, and the new evangelization. Um, you write in Ooh. the fall of of communism that uh, John Paul was perhaps more aware of the devastation caused by the flawed ideologies of the 20th century than any other world leader of his era, and that the first significant crack in the Iron Curtain began with John Paul's 1979 nine-day visit to his native Poland. and He arrived with tremendous hope for his nation, inspiring his countrymen to turn to God and to fight for their freedom. And um, he spoke out against evil. And so you you ask, how did the Pope and the President, with some help from British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher, bring an end to the evil empire? And you write, the Soviet empire was crumbling from within. Its economy was weak for many reasons, not the least of which was that the Soviets were trying to keep the United States in the arms race. More importantly, Reagan and John Paul were utterly convinced that they were on the right side of history. And again, as we talked earlier, they met met uh, several times, and uh, both of them believed this was far more a spiritual battle than it was a, a political one. And of course, uh, the Berlin well, Wall falls, and along with it, the Eastern European communism. The last three are mm-hmm. are theology of the body, divine mercy, and new evangelization. Would you like to talk about one of them, or just have me lead you into it? Let, let's talk about divine mercy. Uh, I worked at the National Shrine of the Divine Mercy for five years um, during the time that I met John Paul II those five times, and um, I got to visit Faustina's St. Faustina's uh, the shrine. And, and her tomb in Krakow a couple of times and really absorbed this divine mercy message uh, very deeply. So that one is close to my heart. And, but I didn't put it at number two simply because it meant a lot to me. Um, when, so for, for those your listeners that aren't aware, uh, Jesus appeared to this young nun in Poland in the 1930s many times. And her, her apparitions were... Uh, that. Many people doubted that this was a real thing. And so her spiritual director said, well, write this down in a diary. And um, 
So she did. She only had a couple of years of education. So it was it was childlike, her, her writings. And a couple of things that, that Jesus said to her. He said, I want a painting commissioned uh, that paints me as you see me. And it was Jesus in a white robe, parting his robe by his heart, and a white ray and a red ray were coming out. This is commonly known today as the divine mercy image. So she had that image commissioned. The second thing she asked is Jesus asked of her is is to have the Sunday after Easter called Divine Mercy Sunday. The, the essence of her of Jesus' message to her was that this era, this time uh, before his second coming, was a time for mercy, uh, kind of the last chance for humanity to turn with with, with uh, t- turn to Jesus for, for mercy and forgiveness and repentance, uh, a time a time of repentance, really. And um, so she died in 1938. John Paul II became uh, a, a bishop in 58, became pope in 78. Uh, during the, the 1960s, he put his top theologian in charge of authenticating her message because there had been some dispute, some bad translations uh, of her diary, and his top theologian authenticated this between 1968 and 1978, six months to the day before John Paul was elected pope. Uh, her, her, her message was authenticated and approved by the Vatican. So when John Paul became pope, he, he, he saw, her ken, saw her through to her canonization and beatification. And he also declared the Sunday after Easter to be Divine Mercy Sunday. So... The reason this is so significant, that's just backstory. The reason this is so significant is that one of the things, the the key things that Jesus said to Faustina was that, I want you to prepare the world for my second coming. Now, when our Lord appears, and it's authenticated by the church that this is real, he says, get the world ready because I'm coming back. That's a big deal that we need to pay attention to. And John Paul II recognized that significance, and he made that one of the key parts of his pontificate is is to um to spread this message of divine mercy and and to let the world know that it's time to turn back to god and and to seek his mercy because it's it's jesus called it an ocean of mercy all you need to do is stick your toe in <laughs> jump right in because uh I, i'm i'm put I'm, I'm i've got so many graces the treasury of graces is open right now but it's not going to last forever now is the time. And now is always the time. And if I amplify on what you've written in your book, 100 Ways That John Paul II Changed the World, um, many believe that uh, divine mercy is simply a pious devotion. It is a pious devotion, but it's much more. Divine mercy is God's love poured out for mankind during the time before Jesus' return or before our particular judgment at the foot of his throne immediately after our death, whichever comes first. It's Jesus' reaching out to each of us personally, calling us to repent now, because he wants us to spend eternity with him. And then, as you talked about the relationship with uh, Pope John Paul in his 1980 papal encyclical, Rich in Mercy, uh, he asks the faithful to plead for God's mercy is the only answer to humanity's tribulations. And then in 1982, he said that God had called him to help spread the message of mercy. 
that uh, and so divine mercy is woven through the entirety of John Paul's work as Pope. And he says, where, if not in the divine mercy, can the world find refuge and the light of hope? We have a greater need than ever for regenerating experience of mercy. Divine mercy is the bridge to the third millennium. By this act, I intend today to pass this message on to the new millennium. I pass it on to all people so that they will learn to know even better the true face of God. So God, we know in this at the time that our world is experiencing right now is certainly calling us to come closer to us so that uh, we might experience his love his, and his forgiveness, certainly his mercy. Amen. Well said, Father. And then um, the, the last two um, that uh, we may want to, you may want to say something about uh, theology of the body. Is that something you can speak about without the book? Oh, uh, yeah, absolutely. Okay. So one of the first teachings that, that John Paul II gave us in his pontificate, it was a series of lectures, uh, I believe 180 lectures or so, between 1979 and 1983-84, uh, was, was together, these lectures, he gave them at his Wednesday audience in, in St. Peter's Square, uh, was collectively called The Theology of the Body. Now, there's a bit of a backstory to that, that when John Paul was a young priest, he, he, he was ministering to young people. He would, and you have to remember, this is under communist uh, Poland, uh, and, and he would take them out of the city. They would go on hikes. They would go kayaking. Uh, they would go out into nature. And the, the young people in that, that day were, knew that the government was, was listening, that there were, there were ears everywhere. But when they're out in nature with this priest, they could feel free to be themselves and ask questions that they couldn't otherwise. And he really had a heart for young people. He was a philosopher himself, a philosopher at heart more than a theologian. And so in listening to these young people, he, he understood that, that they needed a better teaching on human sexuality, all stemming from the root of who is man? What is a human being? What is our purpose? What are we called for? And he wrote this book called Love and Responsibility in 1960 that kind of laid the groundwork for the theology of the body. And, and I'll be quick. The, the theology of the body is simply uh, an under, a, a true understanding of the human person and how they're made. John Paul taught that from looking at the human body, both male and female, we can understand who we are, what we were created for, who God is, and why. And it answers these questions that we, we live in a very sexually confused culture where, where people don't even understand gender anymore. John Paul unpacks that in a beautiful way in the theology of the body. Um, George Weigel called it a theological time bomb that's set to go off sometime in the 21st century. And, and so the, many Catholic teachers are, are unpacking this right now and teaching the theology of the body to help us understand our sexuality in, in a true and authentic way. I know a lot of priests are, are studying uh, and um, for higher degrees, even doctorates in uh, the concept of the theology of the body. And you write to amplify a little bit of what you've already said 
Um, John Paul II's Theology of the Body presents a holistic vision of Christian life rooted in the fact that God created man to experience real love through a free, unconditional, and reciprocal gift of self to the other, culminating in the union of a husband and wife. John Paul's integrated vision of the human person asserted that the human body has a specific meaning, making visible an invisible reality. He taught that the human body is capable of revealing answers to fundamental questions about humans in our lives and revealing God. That is certainly saying a whole lot. He asserted Ooh. that the human person, quote, was not created to be solitary, but to live in communion with others. By God's design, male and female are complementary. This complementarity comes to the fullest expression in the marital act, which is intrinsically ordered toward procreation, an activity whereby the human being is privileged to participate in the creative action of God. John Paul viewed marital love through the lens of Christ's love for his bride, the church. So our guest this evening has been Patrick Novikoski. We've been talking about his book, 100 Ways John Paul II Changed the World. And and um, uh, Patrick, what I'm going to do is read the part of uh, uh, the number one um, way you, you think that the Pope has changed the world is through new evangelization. So I'm going to use those as my my closing remarks. And I uh, just want to thank you so very much for being with us. And I hope that uh, you and all your loved ones have a very happy and a very blessed Thanksgiving. Thank you, Monsignor. Greatly appreciate the opportunity. All right. Good night. So um, the number one uh, way in which um, Patrick Novikoski believes that John Paul has changed the world is in the concept of the new evangelization, whereby the church exists to evangelize. The first thing Jesus said at the outset of his public ministry was, come and see, and this is from John one thirty nine, an invitation to, to follow him. The last thing he said was in Matthew 28.19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And so... Um, he set out to bring Jesus into the world. John Paul recognized that changing times and cultures called for new ways of bringing the gospel to the world, in particular to the world that has already heard the gospel and forgotten or discarded it. And you see many people just think it's it's nothing but a bunch of old words that they've heard often. And um, whatever meaning they attributed in the past, they still attribute to it. And that can be true in some sense, but there is they have not brought to it the experience of their life that can bring even more meaning to when you understand that Jesus was speaking to me, to you. And so uh, it was Pope John Paul II who laid the groundwork for the new evangelization, telling the church that, quote, the present-day phenomenon of secularism 
is truly serious, not simply as regards the individual, but in some ways as regards whole communities. So it's not just individuals, but groups of people. And we see that, the great divisions that exist in society throughout the world today. And so um, John Paul laid out his powerful vision of winning the world for Christ in three ways. He listed three settings in which evangelization is necessary. Among those who have never heard the gospel, among existing vibrant Christian communities, and among Christian communities with ancient roots that, quote, have lost a living sense of the faith or even no longer consider themselves members of the church and live a life far removed from Christ and his gospel. And so the Pope, uh, some people have expressed this saying, he, he has pulled no punches saying that it is a requirement for every follower of Jesus uh, to, uh, to evangelize. And he said it this way, God is opening before the church the horizons of humanity more fully prepared for the sowing of the gospel. I sense that the moment has come to commit all of the church's energies to a new evangelization. No believer in Christ, no institution of the church can avoid this supreme duty to proclaim Christ to all peoples. And so he suggests that if the Catholic Church were a corporation, for example, evangelization would be core to its mission statement. Without doing the work of bringing souls to Christ, the church is lost. Don't forget then how precious life is and how powerful love is. Tell someone now that you love him or her. Pray for peace as if it depended on you alone. And come back next Sunday and amplify with us.